You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Well, let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to Romans chapter 3. A rather pivotal chapter in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, because in this chapter he, of course, both speaks about our sin as well as our salvation in Christ. What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. That God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poisonous vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin, and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing 
the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. We turn this afternoon to Lord's Day 1, question and answer 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism, where the scripture is summarized as follows, and we confess, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, you may have heard it in the news a little while ago as well. It was the story about a couple, I think, in Manitoba who won a huge, humongous lottery prize of $50 million dollars. And when they were interviewed, they said to the interviewer that they were taking it all in stride. And they even stated that it was not going to change their life very much at all. Now that sounds good. But just how realistic is that? For actually, you might say, now the hard part begins. Winning is one thing, hanging on to what you win is another. Just how does one stay sane when soon family, relatives, friends, neighbors, even strangers will all come to you looking for a handout? The pressure, the expectations, and the demands on these people will be enormous. And they will need to take special precautions so that they do not end up in the wing of a certain Ontario mental institution, which is populated almost exclusively by people who won the big one and then went off the deep end. You see, the whole problem is that winning a prize and holding on to it are two different things. Yes, and you might say that the same goes for life as well. Being born rich is one thing. Staying rich is often quite another, especially in these economic times. Receiving a promotion is great, but living up to the expectations that come along with it or something else. Or making a great discovery is wonderful, but... What comes after it can be rather hard to cope with. Well, you know, the same can be said with what we have here in Lord's Day 1. Last time in question and answer 1, we discovered just what our only comfort is in life as well as in death. In other words, we struck pay dirt, treasure, riches, and blessings beyond compare. We saw that there is nothing that compares to belonging with body and soul, both in life and death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
What a discovery. But now in question and answer two, you can see we come to the next part, the hard part, if you will. And that is just how are we going to hang on to this blessed comfort? How are we going to enjoy it today, tomorrow, and forever? How do we keep it, preserve it, maintain it, even grow it? You see, that's the next big question. So I'd like to preach to you this afternoon on the following theme. How does one live and die in true comfort? Or you might say staying in the comfort zone? Well, the answer that the catechism gives is that we need to size ourselves up honestly, embrace our salvation fully, and give thanks to God continually. Well, beloved, as we said, no sooner does the Heidelberg Catechism ask, what is your only comfort in life and death? And we get a second. And in some ways, a a tougher question, what do you need to know in order to live and to die in the joy of this comfort? And I'll stop for a moment and look at the question closely. It doesn't ask, what do you need to do in order to live and die? It doesn't even ask, what do you need to experience to live and die? No, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? In other words, it's asking here about our our knowing, our understanding, our, our knowledge. And you might say, in a way, that's kind of strange. For, you know, comfort is almost automatically equated by us with emotions, with feelings, with experiences. It's thought to be something that that happens to you. It's assumed to be something that, you know, kind of comes over you, sweeps you off your feet, raises you out of the doldrums and the nastiness of life. In other words, this is something or not something that you need to think about at all or get your mind around. No, it's something that comes to you, hits you, overwhelms you. In other words, comfort, we we assume, is a feeling, an experience. And who are we to question feelings and experiences? But you know, beloved, while we do not want to dismiss the world of feelings and emotions, the catechism alerts us here to the fact that this comfort is based on on knowledge. That it has everything to do not just with our hearts, but also with our heads and our minds. And that may disappoint some of us. We'd much rather talk about the affairs of the heart than about the workings of the brain. We are more often moved by a romantic story than we are by a scientific experiment, at least most of us. But nevertheless, we do need to be careful here. We need to be careful that we do not elevate one part of our existence above another, that we do not label one to be superior and the other to be inferior. Heart and mind are not in competition. 
No, our God has made us and equipped us with both. And as well, he calls upon us to love him with both even more. The Lord Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. With all your mind. Years ago, a famous British preacher and teacher wrote a little book. And the title says it all. Your mind matters. And that too is what the Lord Jesus wants to stress when he adds the word, and with all your mind. And it's also what the Apostle Paul wants to get at when he comments on his fellow Jews. In Romans 10, verse 2, he says, I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. And you know what zeal without knowledge ends up being? Foolishness. So let's be careful here. In the first place, let us not go into false dilemmas where we pit heart versus mind. And in the second place, let us not dismiss our minds when it comes to salvation. Christianity is not a mindless religion. Paul insists upon the use of our minds and even upon the renewal of our minds. Imagine someone who is a Christian and whose life is suddenly overwhelmed with great sorrow and stress and sadness and and you go to them in order to visit them and to comfort them and what do you do? Well, first of all, you do well to do what James says. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. And second, you do well to pray for wisdom from God. And third, you do well to look for opportunity. Opportunity for what? Why, opportunity to speak the right kind of words. Words of compassion, of understanding, of sensitivity, and of knowledge. But why bother? Well, surely because you know that words of comfort are meant to penetrate our ears, to grip our hearts, and ultimately to capture our minds. Only when the truths of the Holy Scripture are heard, understood, and grasped with our minds will the weight of sorrow begin to lift and the glimmerings of hope appear. We need to process and apply the promises, the truths, and the teachings of Scripture. If we're going to push back the darkness and walk again in the light, And so, beloved, knowledge matters. Biblical knowledge matters very much. It matters also when we want to hang on to our only comfort. For you see, there are things that we need to know. As the Catechism says, if we are to live and die in the joy of this comfort, 
And what kind of things do we now then need to know? Well, first of all, there are certain things the Catechism says that we need to know about ourselves. And what kind of things do we need to know about ourselves? Well, how great my sins and misery are. Now that's disappointing, right? Here we are expecting the catechism to refresh our minds with some great and wonderful truths, or at the least we are expecting it to remind us about some noble and upright elements in us. And what do we get to hear? We're told that we need to apply our minds to our sins and ultimately to our misery. And that we need specifically to apply them to the fact of how great they are. And notice one more thing. We're not told to reflect on how great they used to be once upon a time. The catechism uses the present tense. Not the past tense. How great my sins and misery are. Now I ask again, isn't that disappointing as well as depressing? Here we assume that once we are living in the land of comfort, we could wave goodbye to our sins. But no, they're still present. But yet is that true? Should we really be concentrating our minds first and our present sins and the consequences of our sins, which is misery? Well, according to Scripture, we should be. You may remember the Apostle John tells us, even warns us, if we claim to be without sin, and he's talking to believers, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And the Apostle Paul, in examining both the Jews and the Gentile position, says, we're all, in chapter 3, we're all under sin. We're all in the same boat. And it's an ugly boat. And of course, one may say that as those who belong to Christ, we are no longer under the dominion of sin or Satan. After all, Christ has paid for our sins and set us free from the devil But nevertheless, the sad reality is that while we may no longer be under sin and Satan's dominion, we are still suffering from its awful effects. And isn't that true? Isn't that reality? Isn't that honesty? Are there any of you here who claim to believe in Jesus Christ and at the same time claim to be sinless? Are there any of you here who claim to do everything right all the time, every day, in words, thought, and deed? Are there any here who no longer experience the power of temptation or covetousness or lust or evil desires? You know, much later on, the Catechism asked this question. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? And the answer, no. No. In this life, even the holiest of believers have only a small beginning of this new obedience. So the first thing we need to know is 
the bad news, the ugly news, that sin is still with us. And misery is too. And indeed, we do well to admit this and to spend some time reflecting on the fact of our sins and our misery. You might say the first thing the catechism is telling you here is to to stay realistic, stay humble. It's saying you need to know your need. Never forget, as long as you're in this life, your spiritual need. But then at the same time, don't get depressed. For I would remind you that while knowing our sin and misery is the first thing, it is not the only thing. There is something else the Catechism immediately says that we also need to know, and that is how I am delivered from my sin and misery. And then again, notice how the answer is, is put. I am not being asked whether I know how to defeat sin and misery all by myself. I am not being quizzed about whether I know the ten basic steps to deliverance. No, this is all about me being delivered. This is all about what is being done to me and for me. It's not about me and what I can do. It's about God. And what he does for me. And what has he done for me? I am delivered. And you know the how and the what of being delivered. That's the next thing on which you're supposed to focus your mind. And and, and when you do that, when you focus your mind on your deliverance, what do you see? You know, there's really only one thing you should be seeing, and that is Christ. Christ and the wonderful deliverance that he has wrought for us. And you know, that deliverance of Christ has many different aspects attached to it, and we don't have time to go into all of them this afternoon. But first of all, we can say a few things, and the first thing is this deliverance is divine. It's not a human work. It's not a work from below, it's from above. It finds its origin in the electing love of God. It finds its basis in the great mercy of God. It finds its confirmation in the covenant of God. It finds its heart in the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It finds its joy in the righteousness that flows from God through Jesus Christ and faith in him. Truly, this deliverance is a divine work. And at the same time, it's also very much a sacrificial work. Jesus Christ didn't come down to earth to party and have fun. That may sometimes describe our life and our goals, but it doesn't describe his He came here on a mission, and that mission had sacrifice and death written all over it. Every day, he lived in step with his father's will. 
Every day he was mindful of the needs of his people. Every day he, he suffered. Every day he saw that cross looming before him. And he knew that beyond the work of teaching and of doing miracles and of gathering his disciples, there was the work of dying. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3 that God presented him to us as an atoning sacrifice. And that through his blood, redemption would flow to us who believe. You see, this saving work is sacrificial work. And it's also something else, and we learn that from the Apostle too. It's a work that's infused and filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. You can read about that, especially in Romans chapter 8. He writes there about the spirit of life who set me free. He writes there that we who believe do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He writes there about our our minds being controlled by the Spirit of life and peace. And he tells us that the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise us up. And he urges us to use the power of the Spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the body. And it goes on and on. How great and glorious is the person and the work of the Spirit of Christ. This deliverance is not just divine work and a sacrificial work. It's also very much a spiritual work. And finally, it's an eternal work as well. Paul says again in Romans 8, and that's surely one of the great chapters in this letter, that today creation groans and today we still groan. And there's enough evidence of that. And today, Paul says, even the Spirit is still groaning. But you know, a day is coming when all the groaning will cease and the groaning will be replaced by singing, the singing of the redeemed, the singing of a new world and a new life that has come. We who today are more than conquerors in name and in title will then be more than conquerors in fact and deed. We will know what it is to be conquerors through him who loved us, conquerors over death, and devil, and powers, and depths, and over everything, and forever, and always. You see, this deliverance is an eternal work. It goes on forever. Yes, and it's on this multifaceted work that the catechism says you need to concentrate your mind. You need to know how you are delivered from your sin and misery. And how familiar are we with that deliverance, beloved? How often and how hard do we think about it? Do we really know what it entails? 
I'm sure you've heard the saying that in many places Christians are a mile wide and they're an inch deep. So there's a lot of them, but they know very little. And so the question is pertinent. Are you acquainted with the wonder and the majesty and the mystery and the beauty of your redemption? And you know, if you are, then the third thing will come bubbling up out of your mind and your heart. And it is this, that we need to know how to be Thankful in response to all of this. What shall I render to my Savior for all the riches of his consolation? In other words, once you've seen the need and once you've grasped the solution, your life should be transformed. And it should become a life of thanksgiving to God. To God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So is that the case with us? How thankful are we? We know how to complain. We know how to grumble. All that stuff comes naturally. But do we know how to give thanks? And to give praise? To God. And I ask that because we're better at getting than giving, receiving than bestowing. You see that already in your children. Someone gives them something and you need to tell them, to remind them, to say thank you. And you usually need to remind them to do that over and over again. Because they forget. Giving thanks doesn't come naturally to us. And so if our children have problems, are we any better? Does it come easier to us? Not really. We too need to be reminded. And thankfully, in all of that reminding business, we also have a great reminder We have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit whom Christ has given to us to remind us about the words of Christ and the deeds of Christ and life in Christ. And you know, the Spirit in the process also uses certain means when it comes to teaching us about thankful living. He uses, for example, I dare say, the law. Specifically, the law of the Ten Commandments. Now, I, I know you're not all fans of the law. But, you know, you need to ask yourself a question. If it were not for the law of God, what shape would your thankfulness take? I dare say, if it weren't for the law, it'd be nothing more than guesswork, and a bunch of stabs in the dark. 
You'd cross your finger and you'd do something and, and you'd hope beyond hope that God would be pleased with you. Or you would attempt this or you would attempt that and you would hope beyond hope that you got it right. What a miserable, uncertain way to live. So consider yourself blessed to have the law of God, the Torah, the will of God. You know from it what God wants and expects from you in terms of right living, thankful living. Because he tells you it's all about his person and his name and, and his honor and reputation and his day. And it's all about your neighbor. About her honor and her life and her marriage and her property and her name and her happiness. In short, God has told us what it is that brings praise and pleasure to his fatherly heart. Stick to the law and it won't be a stab in the dark. Yes, he's told you. And you in turn can also tell him. You know, if the law is the greatest guide when it comes to our thankful living, then prayer is the greatest way in which you can express yourself to God. You can talk to him. You can praise him. He even gives you pointers through his son. You can praise him for his great name, for his great kingdom, for his great will. You can thank him for food, for forgiveness, for protection. Together, the law and prayer teach us what we need to know in order to have a life full of thankfulness. And it's saying to us, just be his child. His loving Praying, obedient, honoring, praise-filled child. Every day. You need to know how to be thankful. And it's not hard to know this. And indeed, beloved, also apply your mind to it. Apply it not just to your sin and your need, not just to your deliverance and your salvation, but also your thankfulness. And what will you see in the end? You will see what it means to live and to die in the joy of your only comfort. Yes, in the joy of this comfort. Real joy, lasting joy. Comes only from, from God. From knowing your need, knowing His great and vast salvation, and from loving and serving Him every day. So now then, beloved, you know what the prize is. And hopefully you also know how to hang on to it in life and even in death. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.